0: Welcome to the NCJA podcast. This podcast series explores promising practices, provides guidance on strategic planning, and discusses how the Burn Justice Assistance Grant Program, or Burn JAG, contributes to improving justice systems across the country. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the NCJA podcast. My name is Amanda Blasco, and I am a program manager here at the National Criminal Justice Association. Today's episode is a deep dive into Institute to Innovate, a holistic capacity building program for community based organizations. We'll discuss what capacity building really means and how it differs from training and technical assistance, the workings and development of the program itself, and advice and takeaways for other state agencies who are hoping to build something similar. I'm thrilled to be here today with Del Reese Adams. The executive director of the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, and the creator and driving force behind Institute to Innovate. Reese thank you so much for being here on the NCJA podcast. Would you mind briefly introducing yourself?
1: Sure, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I consider myself a justice warrior with over 25 years of direct social service and criminal justice reform efforts. In 2020, the Illinois Governor J.B. Prisker appointed me to lead the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority. So I spearhead the state administrative agency that oversees the VOCA and VAWA victim services grants, as well as criminal justice work and violence prevention. My platform is equity, fairness, and opportunity. Those are the priorities of every grant program and policy administered by ICJA. And we want to make sure that community is definitely resourced. We feel like a lot of the answers to our issues around violence and victim services lies in the hands of community. And so that is something that we prioritize and has been very important. And you'll hear more about the Institute as a means and mechanism to do that.
0: Thank you. So just as a way of level setting here at the beginning of the episode, so capacity building is one of those phrases that we hear often in the criminal justice space, but I think sometimes we're not always on the same page as to what that phrase really means. Would you mind just kind of in the context of Institute to Innovate describing what does capacity building mean and how does it kind of fit into larger discussions of equity, both in terms of criminal justice broadly, but also within grants administration and funding decisions?
1: Yes. So capacity building in the traditional sense kind of has always meant building the ability of agencies to successfully administer grant dollars, right? So it's making sure that they have the appropriate amount of staff and that their structure and infrastructure is in place, that they're able to have a fiscal agent who can help them to do the reporting and make sure that they're in compliance with all the rules of traditional funding. So we kind of think of it in a very stoic Way of you know making sure that people can be in compliance. Um, We kind of take a broader definition of capacity building, and it is to make sure that smaller grassroots organizations who have not had traditional dollars but have done some really incredible work with a very vulnerable and marginalized population that we seek to service, that they actually have the resources that they need, but that they also understand what it takes to be successful in having grant dollars and doing that grant administration. But most importantly, that we create sort of that infrastructure and development for them so that they're sustainable, so that they can actually do the work long term in community and not just be a sort of like a one and done or they get grant dollars and they dissolve because they don't have that infrastructure and in, in the the capacity to actually handle those dollars.
0: Thank you, and I feel like this kind of leads into my second question. So I think a lot of state agencies and really agencies in general that provide grants, for example, they do provide training and technical assistance in some capacity or other forms of support. So in your mind, what are the key kind of differences between a capacity building program and just kind of your typical forms of support and training and technical assistance options?
1: Yeah, capacity building is more about the organization. It's more about really taking the time to get under the hood of that organization, which is really difficult as a government entity because we have traditionally said, show up in your best self, like come all dressed up, We don't want to know about your scars or anything that you have. We don't want to know about your imperfections. You have to be ready. And what we're kind of shifting and saying that we know that we have not put in the amount of time and resources and training and building in these organizations. So we want to know where do they fall short. So capacity building is really about the development of the organization. In our program, we do things in, in terms of like looking at their processes, looking at their boards, helping them to develop some basic principles of missions and values, things that maybe, as an organization, they haven't had time to step back because again, they haven't had traditional funding. So they've been kind of piecemealing all along the way. And I think the biggest difference between capacity building and technical assistance is technical assistance is those organizations who are already in relationship with government. They're already Have grant dollars. We're sort of helping them, training them around the best practices and how they should be implementing based on already set criteria. So that would be the biggest difference. It's um, really just helping. Technical assistance is more about the learning and understanding to get the grant dollars administered the way the program was written and the way that the government entity sees fit, whereas capacity-building is really that investment in community, in those community-based and localized organizations.
0: There's been so much historic disinvestment in certain communities, especially communities of color. So to see a government agency making a concrete effort to make an investment in those communities and in those organizations, I feel like that's just so huge, just knowing that people have decided to make an investment. Now that we've kind of clarified what capacity building is, I'd love to kind of turn more in-depth to Institute to Innovate. So how how did the creation of the Institute to Innovate come about?
1: It came about as an observation, as I mentioned before, I consider myself a justice warrior. So I've worked over decades in the field and at all levels. Um, I used to be in community, actually a program director at a local nonprofit organization, and then I worked in all levels of government, city, county, and state. And when I came to the state, we were beginning to evolve and really target smaller organizations in our grant-making process, particularly with our Restore, Reinvest, and Renew, which is our R3 grant dollars, which comes from the cannabis tax revenue. And what I was witnessing is that the staff were struggling. I have amazing staff at my at ICJ; They do incredible work. Um, But they were used to traditional kind of bigger organizations with lots of experience who have had state dollars for, you know, maybe a decade, like in terms of our victim services, some of them have had Volca VAWA for 20 years. And these were newer organizations getting violence prevention dollars. So very critical work, um, important local work, right, because each community, each block, may need a, a different kind of initiative or strategy, right? And our grant monitors and our managers were struggling with the amount of engagement that they needed to have, the amount of like teaching and handholding. And some of the organizations came to us and weren't, they were not ready. They had mastered having a good grant writer that got them the award, but they had never had this large amount of investment. And while it was the thing that we think everyone needs, we're like, oh, if we can just get organizations dollars, that's the fix. But what you don't want them to do is struggle with the grant administration, and that takes up 70% of their time, and they're not able to focus on the programming or reaching the population that they need to reach or doing that really critical, unique type of services that actually got them awarded the grant. And so the Institute to Innovate was an idea um, that I've been toying with when I was at the county and really had started thinking about it at the city working on violence prevention. How can we make sure that the smaller grassroots organizations that were touching the hardest to serve populations, so they're doing exactly what we know needs to be done to actually move the needle on violence, and how can we make sure that they get dollars? And not only do they get the dollars, but they're successful. And so I started thinking about leadership academies I had been in, or even college or my graduate program. There was always like a sort of a learning curve of a process, right, where you learn sort of all the things from A to Z that you need to know, and then you can go out and practice and implement. And so I was thinking, hey, we need something very similar to that, really teaching best practices, evidence-based. Types of curriculum around, you know, their, the models of good organizing, good organizations, what they need in their organization to actually implement impactful programming, and then what type of staffing structure is needed and necessary for them to be able to be compliant and reporting and be able to understand budgets and direct costs and all those technical terms that um, government dollars bring to bear. And so the Institute is a mechanism for really wrapping our arms around small organizations, giving them the guided support that they need in the grant administration process, but before that, building that muscle and the capacity that their organizations need in order to be able to thrive and succeed.
0: If like a smaller, like let's say it's a community-based organization has a grant and they're struggling with like some pretty major compliance issues because they weren't set up for success and they're very unfamiliar with, you know, the very strict rules that often these grants carry with them. Would it be pretty much impossible to ever get a grant again with those compliance issues against you? I guess it's kind of my, my question. Like how hard is it to get another grant if you once had compliance issues? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I think it's a great question. It really speaks to the need of what the Institute would help with, right? Because that's a part of the sustainability piece. We have had many times organizations that weren't ready and they were issued state or you know other government funding and were not successful. That puts them on a stop pay list or a compliance list where they are sort of marked as you know not able to have other types of funding it could even be in different agencies. So once you get on for example Illinois stop pay list, you're you're forbidden from having funding from all of the sister agencies across the state until you kind of fix that issue or whatever it is that that led for you to get on the stop pay list. So there is a lot at stake when organizations, aren't ready and, and somehow are not in compliance and it could be something as simple as they don't have a third-party audit and that could be a requirement of their state funding but they may have never had this threshold of dollars before so do they know a, a firm um, do they know how to have an engagement with someone who can do that third-party audit but just not submitting that report can land you on the stop pay list. And that that one's a, just an example. That one's an easy fix. Some of the issues are a little bit more complicated where organizations don't understand how line items work on their budget. And so they are thinking, oh, I have $100,000. I'll just do what the program needs. And they overspend and save supplies. And the state agency is saying, oh, no, you couldn't spend 50000 in supplies. Your budget is only for 45000 You owe us 5000 right? So that can be a hardship for an organization who thinks, oh, I, wow, I was just doing great work, who knew they were so strict about the budget, right? Um, so it's, it's all of these kind of nuances that it's complicated. Grant administration is pretty complicated, and I don't know if we acknowledge that. And we acknowledge it to organizations where this is foreign, they've never spoken this language, they never had to manage this type of funding with all of the compliance and criteria. And I don't know if we even touched on this, Amanda, but Illinois has a Grants Accountability Transparency Act, we call it GATA. And GATA was put in place about maybe seven years ago, and it mirrors the federal CFR 200 compliance. So the rules are very close to the federal rules around grant administration. So they're, you know, they're pretty strict and some agencies are clueless. You know, maybe they've had foundation dollars, which are very flexible. You know, you can kind of do a lot more with them. And now they have this very regiment structured grant that, they really have to be on top of, you know, crossing their T's dot their I, and maybe they don't have that infrastructure because the program director is also the fiscal manager in doing all of the fiscal and program reports, right? There's a lot at stake in not investing in organizations, not kind of bringing them up and training them, if you will, um, so that they can be successful and that they learn, that they truly learn what it takes to be a successful grantee of um, federal and state dollars.
0: You've already kind of briefly mentioned some of the services that are kind of provided in terms of capacity building for the institute to innovate. But I guess just overall, what are the primary services that the institute provides?
1: Yeah, we use a, a, a cute little acronym because you know you can't work in state government without an acronym <laughs> called the PARLA process. Again, it's embedded and evidence-based types of development, organizational development. So planning, administration, resources, learning, optimization, and relationships. That's what PARLA is. So planning more around the development of their mission, vision, and strategic plan. Everything from that to administration of establishing their board and executive staff to resources. What is a fund development plan? How do they prove that they're able to manage Fiscally, do they know about financial standards? Um, learning, meaning, like, what's the human capital needs? What are your training needs for staff? A lot of smaller organizations don't have training budgets, or staff development is the last thing they can think about because they're really just piecemealing enough money to operate their programming. But that learning is so key and critical because you need experts in the field. You need people who really understand the ecosystem and the dynamics as well as best practices of whatever programs they're administering. Optimization is we hope that we can help them develop protocols that help with effectiveness and program outcomes so that all of these smaller organizations can tell their impact stories. They can really collect data and understand when they're having impact or when they need to make adjustments. Um, And then relationships. No one can survive without networks. Again, you know, maybe they don't know an auditor. So how can they be in a network where people can offer a referral or, you know, they don't have a grant writer. Is there a grant writer that can be shared across organizations? So really helping them build those networks and relationships and, and things, if you think about it, that some of our traditional, very strong organizations and community have like a YMCA, or boys and girls club, like they have that type of infrastructure already in place. So, how do we bring the smaller grassroots organizations up to par?
0: That's really great, and I also like just how holistic the approach is, and just how you said, kind of at the beginning of our discussion, just how it's about making sure the whole organization achieves success beyond even just like one singular grant opportunity or any grant opportunity. It's like it goes further and more encompassing than that with that kind of in mind that it's very holistic an approach how did you kind of go about coming up with a curriculum for the institute did you kind of model it after anything existing or was it kind of starting from scratch yeah
1: I I hate saying start from scratch because, you know, nothing ever really starts from scratch, right? But there was no blueprint. Um, we looked, again, I kind of had this idea and did a little bit of research and was looking for something that specifically spoke to government, right? Like there are some programs out there, but they're maybe philanthropic or like another community-based organizations whose mission is to help other smaller organizations but there was really nothing in the field that government was doing at this scale, right? So we may offer a capacity building grant where we say, hey, well, are $40,000, small organizations, you can use this to build you know, staffing. Um, but there was nothing in place that really provided this level of, I consider like intense engagement. We do have um, what we call grant coaches, are in place. And so each organization in the Institute is assigned to a grant coach. And these grant coach, they're different subject matter experts. So someone may be really great at organizational development. Somebody else may be really great at website design, right? So they can, they're assigned to one, but they can use any coach within the Institute when we get to certain parts of that curriculum, you know, to really be able to lean on them, to, to gather information, to ask questions, but you know, just someone there that's providing a, a guided approach. Other thing that, that was missing when I looked or looked for models that we could use, we definitely wanted to have something unique where it would give organizations um, sort of like this stamp of readiness where other people in the field could say, oh, hey, they went through these steps and um, really did some improvements to their organization where we can kind of look at them differently. We do a full assessment on all of the organizations. It's pretty lengthy where we look at all of those different parts of an organization that we talked about and kind of let them know, like, where do you think you land? Like, Where do you need the most improvement where you're pretty strong at and, you know, you, you thrive and you don't really need a lot of attention. And then bringing that coach in to help in those targeted areas really build the muscle, I like to say, of that organization. And again, that's going to lead to sustainability. That's going to lead to them being more viable, more marketable. They're going to have stronger programs to present. They're going to be able to compete in the landscape of <laughs> grant you know, the grants is a really tough market. I, You know, to get a grant takes a lot, but to, to continuously have funding for years to come, it, it does take a skill and a readiness that the Institute, uh, we think, helps organizations get to.
0: Could you kind of speak to kind of the structure of the Institute as well as the length of it? Is it like a... In person, online, group setting, what does that kind of look like for participants? It's online
1: primarily, so it's six months. There are six months of curriculum. They meet every other week, so twice a month. Online, because of two things. One, you know, we just learned how to do that better in in a pandemic environment. And so we want to continue that learning. But it also affords us to be broad. So our organizations can come from anywhere in the state. And Illinois is a pretty long state. So you could drive from one point to another point. It could be like seven hours, right? From like north all the way to East St. Louis. So this gives us the ability to be statewide. There is two in-person points of contact, um, one in the midst of the institute, and then their culminating graduation, we call it, is is in-person. So yeah, that's pretty much the structure. After the six months, our organization releases a competitive capacity building NOFO and they can apply and they will meet the criteria because one of the criteria is if you participated in some capacity building program in the last year. And so that part of the Institute has 12 months of guided grant administration where the coach stays with them throughout the process of their grant administration, along with, you know, they have a regular traditional grant monitor and all that. But this is an extra person that they can lean on they can ask questions to they can reach out to they could be a liaison between their monitor and them um so it's really i like to call it guided grant administration
0: and and an intense
1: type of relationship building
0: i like that the guided grants administration so the coach part was that something that you pulled from some type of existing model or what made you kind of think oh that But like a light bulb moment, because that just seems like a light bulb moment to me, because I feel like that's one of the things that would make a huge difference. Yeah.
1: So I am a social worker by trade. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, And so when I maybe like 20 years ago, I was a case manager for our Department of Children and Family Services. And these were family, it was called intensive family services. And these were families where the court thought, this mom could be a great mom. You know, she's got an allegation, but we think it's circumstantial. And so this program provided them a case manager for 28 days. And they called it intensive services because that case manager was with that family like every day for 28 days, just kind of helping them get resources making sure they had everything that they needed, you know, really building sort of life skills with the family with the hopes of the, the child, you know, being able to stay connected with their birth family. And so I was a case manager. <laughs> and so I, you know, I knew how the model worked and we had great success. And the success was just predicated on that intense level of engagement. Because if, you're, if it's a foreign ask for someone, they need a, like a learning curve, right? They need to have someone that they can ask those questions to, that they can bounce things off of, that they can get a better understanding. Um, the one thing that I kept seeing at ICJA, we do use a lot of acronyms, but just grant talk, it's another language. And where monitors were thinking they were explaining things and they were saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, here's our policy, here's what you can submit as a compliance document, it was like just being missed, just people weren't getting it, it was going over their heads, and then there was a level of frustration because we weren't receiving what we needed, or it was taking so long, or community was like, these people are out to get us, they want us to fail, they're asking for all this stuff, (laughs) they asked for it multiple times in different ways, like this is a setup, right? And it was just not working on both hands on the community end as well as us as government, you know doing this the grant work. And so it was just important to kind of step back, um, say like, what is the thing that's missing in our and how we do it?" And that thing was the capacity, our own capacity in IICG to do this level of engagement. We just didn't have the bandwidth. Like We're not staffed like that. Many of our staff are not community-centered. They're, I don't know, accountants, right? Or they're (laughs) compliance officers. (laughs) And so they're just all about the rules. And this was more about relationships. And so that piece was really key and important. And that kind of through my social work um, background and love of you know all things community is how we came about the the grand coaches
0: that's really cool and just like hearing you talk about it like it's just really clear like how your own like professional experience and your passions has like appeared in the final product here it was like really cool to see how are participants selected for the program because I know you mentioned that a lot of the organizations that you're working with where you most recently finished, the cohort was like very gun violence specific. So are all the cohorts going to be specific to you know violence prevention or gun violence prevention? And how do you kind of select those participants?
1: At this time, they are all violence prevention. That's sort of the area that we're, we're targeting um, because most of the resources new resources that we have coming through the state of Illinois are robust in terms of violence prevention. And so we're getting the bulk of new organizations doing work in that area. We had a, what we call a request for information, was our sort of competitive outreach that we did asking, it was very short, like, a couple of questions um, with the criteria that organizations had to have a budget less than $2 million. They needed to be localized and and serve the community um, that they were situated in. And they, at the time for this first cohort, they could not have any state funding. And so over, over a course of, I believe it was two years. And so we, Got a lot of organizations that, again, you know, really small, localized groups. Many of them had never had state funding. I think one of the also key things was the commitment. That was probably like one of the last things that kind of sorted people in terms of their ability to participate. And they had to be able to commit to the two workshops a month. Some people opted out and said, I can't do it now. We'll just go on and bake. Predicated on funding, if you know <laughs> the legislator and the governors feel this is valued, you know ICGA will continue to advocate for resources for for the institute, and so there'll be continued cycles. But yes, our first cohort was really small. It was nine organizations who said they were capable of you know making that commitment and they that fit into the criteria. And at the beginning, we did not have dollars to guarantee people. There was no promise of funding. And so, you know, some people aren't attracted to it. They they made some hard choices as to whether or not they could take the time out to do something like this when for them, just getting funding is their priority. They, you know, they don't have time to really kind of think of a long-term process to do that.
0: So for the participants, it's completely free, I'm assuming, right?
1: Yes, it is completely free. And we got a lot of great feedback. Where Again, because this is new, it's a pilot, we're researching it. ICJA has a robust research and evaluation unit. And so we're evaluating so that we can, you know, tell, like, how impactful is it. And But just the feedback, the just kind of narrative responses organizations gave us specifically, you know, after the graduation was that, like, they're blown away. Like, this is something they never had. It's almost like a graduate program for nonprofits who want to be successful administering grants like most people do grant administration just learning on the fly right it's like parenting (laughs) there's very few parenting courses out there so important but no one's really telling you step by step in that different phases and age like no one's saying hey when you get to 300,000 in grants it looks different or when you get to a million you have to build a bigger infrastructure. Like no one's really kind of helping agencies grow and develop in that way. And so it, it's very apparent this is much needed and people appreciate it. And we can't get enough of folks saying like, when are you gonna do the next one?
0: That's exciting. It's always exciting feedback. So now that the first cohort has graduated, which is so exciting, have there been any lessons learned along the way in terms of things you might want to change for the next cohort group?
1: Yes, um, we definitely want to give them more space to have sort of like peer exchange. They begin to do that uh, organically. And we were like, oh, wow, why didn't we think of this? Why didn't we kind of put that in the curriculum? We had a lot of debriefing where they got to give us feedback, some, you know, just traditional surveys of like how were the courses. But we also did some other kind of like feedback loops where they gave us some real honest (laughs) suggestions about different parts of the curriculum or even the order like, oh, you all should have kind of had a speaker or somebody come in to talk about this part, the branding and the websites before we went and, you know, talked about the networking and relationship building with outside organizations, right? Like, so lots of kind of very detailed lessons learned and how we can improve. The other thing I think is the assessment. The assessment tool, we underestimated the value of it. And we heard from the organizations that it's so valuable to them that they can use it beyond the institute it can be a litmus measure of how their organization is growing and where they need to put some resources in development when we talk about board a lot of people didn't know like oh what you can have a board that's a fundraising board versus a board that has experience and certain expertise that you can rely on and that's leverage, right? So where they don't have dollars all the time, how can they have people that support their organization who can still help the growth and the development happen when they're trying to raise funds for their program? So a few you know, nuggets that we took away that we'll incorporate as we build out and, and hopefully do a second cohort, and then we'll make those adjustments so that the program really speaks to the audience that we're targeting.
0: Since we're on the subject of reflections, do you have any reflections from making the Institute to Innovate a reality kind of from the beginning of the process to the graduation of the first cohort that you'd like to kind of share with our podcast listeners and any kind of like advice on where agencies that are seeking to create a capacity building program, or maybe even just offer some capacity building services, like where might they start? Yeah, that's
1: such a great question, Amanda. I have lots of reflections. I was like, so overjoyed with the first graduating, um, because it was it was a tough road. There were a lot of kind of challenges and um, setbacks. And I would say like people not really fully invested, right? Like they were like, Oh, great idea. But sort of as a government entity, they're like, oh, that's risky. Um, (laughs) You're going to pour into these organizations. Are they going to expect something of you? Like, now do they think that they automatically get state funding? And it was like, no, we'll have very clear definitions of what everyone's role is, what the institute is, what it's not. And then the funding piece. I think it was very hard for, you know, just thinking like overall budget like they're like, wait, this is money that's going into helping organizations grow. Like, what are we getting out of it? it doesn't sound like we're getting a service. What if they take their nice new developed org and like go somewhere else, <laughs> right? So it was like all these questions of like, is this really cost effective? Will it like ha- have a positive impact on the state? And the answer was yes. If we have viable, super- effective, impactful organizations that can sustain themselves, that can do the type of intensive work around violence prevention that we need. It helps the whole state. It saves the whole state money, whether they are a grantee of ours or getting money from philanthropy or um, other um, government entity, city or county. They're in the ecosystem thriving and really touching that population that we need to have the supports and the resources that will help them not continue to have those risk factors or things that lead to violence. Um, so it is a win-win any way you look at it. So I reflect a lot on it was a hard road but at every kind of detour and turn it was worth it to try to get over that hump. I would encourage anyone who's thinking about it like start small I had a big vision. I wanted like $4.5 million. I want to have all of this all incorporated. I want to have the curriculum piece and the grant making piece all together. I want to do a hundred organizations up front. And it did not materialize like that. It started to come about smaller and in parcels like, okay, you have funding for your staff. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's start. Okay, now you have funding for grants, right? So it it took a while for all the pieces to come together. But in terms of equity, I just think it's critical. It, it is probably going to be the most crucial thing that you do if you're serious about being equitable in your grant making. Because just to change your practice and say, hey, we're going to bring in You know, groups that have been historically disinvested. Now we're gonna just open the floodgates and give them resources, which is an amazing thing, but you're almost doing more harm because you're not giving them the the proper tools to be successful. And so if you look long term, I think it's our responsibility as government to begin to learn and understand what capacity building means and how do we intentionally support organizations that we know do the critical work that we cannot do alone.
0: I agree. I feel like it's a long, a desperately long overdue endeavor. Can I ask just about, because you mentioned kind of like being a rocky road, especially in the beginning with getting, you know, people kind of on board with the idea. How did you kind of go about explaining the value of the program to them? Like, did you do like presentations? Was it like a lot of relationship building, as we've talked about a lot here in the episode, like, I think that would be of interest to a lot of other agencies who might find themselves in a similar boat. Yeah,
1: it it was a lot of relationship building on all levels, right? So relationship building with organizations, because we're government, we don't have the best relationship, they don't trust us. They're like, what, what you want to know all about us? Like, what is that about? Right? So that took some understanding and kind of getting out there doing that level of outreach. I have a community engagement manager that our organization didn't have that position before, It's a two-year-old position. And having that person kind of develop those relationships in community was really helpful as we began to do outreach, right? Because they had already had that relationship kind of going. They were telling people like, I see Joe wants to make sure that we are invested in that, that we do have that relationship It was a relationship building on the side of internal staff. Our monitors were like, well, what is this new thing? Does it take away from our job? So really helping them to understand that it is an enhancement, right? It's almost like having a tutor. So where you can't spend three hours a week talking to the same agency walking them through documents and the language barrier, you're, like, you're not kind of set up for that. So this is your support. So it's not only the support for the agency, it's also support for internal staff and then the external stakeholders and partners, right? So legislators and the budgeteers and the people who determine our state agency budget, really making the case of, if we're talking about equity in Illinois, what do we really mean? How can we be authentic in our approach? And then what does it look like in action? And if we're saying it looks like we provide more grant dollars to underserved, underrepresented, historically disinvested organizations, then how do we do that in a responsible way that doesn't cause more harm? So I think you hit it on the head. It's it's really not about, you know, the institute is important. You're going to come up with curriculum that's needed based on your region and what organizations are saying they need. Um, And a lot of what we poured in was things we were hearing or things we were witnessing organizations were struggling with in our grant administration. Um, So you're going to build that. But the relationship is really the hard work. It's really what you'll need to focus on for your program to be successful and really being thoughtful and intentional about equity and grant making. I mean, it's really that simple and and you'll develop those relationships and they'll give you more feedback that'll go into how you develop curriculum, how you structure a capacity building opportunity, and it'll be based on that feedback that you get from, those localized organizations, but you won't get that feedback without building that relationship. So that is the key, I think, to having a successful initiative. I do want to mention that having the governor and the lieutenant governor's support, like it came a little bit later, but it is the thing that I think is pivoting. Now there's just interest in investing more in capacity building. And I think it came from the top right so it didn't feel like I just felt like I was just struggling like pitching this like I'm like a, just a used car salesman like we need it we need it and now that the governor and lieutenant governor are out and about kind of talking about capacity building it feels a little easier like legislators are like okay what do you need or how you know should we do a line item for this where I was not getting that before.
0: So what what changed? Like, how did you get their support? Or was it just be, by getting the support of people that might have been like underneath them, organization?
1: I think really framing it as equity initiative and understanding this is like, what makes, how do you put equity into action? Because people can talk about it a lot and both the governor and lieutenant governor, that's a priority for them. They are very interested. Each of them talk tremendously about being equitable and having equity. In fact, the governor started, he has an equity office that is unprecedented. We never had that in the state of Illinois. When I was able to tie that, you know, connect the dot as to this is equity and grant making, capacity building is a key and central component to that. It was like an aha moment for them. And they were like, Exactly. Like, this is the the lieutenant governor's all about. She has a justice, equity and opportunity office that she actually created. Right. Like, so they're both all about equity. And so I think in the beginning it was just a little risky, like, hmm, this is not how we really do government. Like, people need to be ready. They need to come to us with great applications. Like, we're not in the business of building people's nonprofits, right? (laughs) But when we could see that connectivity to really being true about equitable grant making, I, I think that they pivoted and were champions after that. And so I do have amazing support from both the governor and lieutenant governor's office. I don't want it to go unrecognized that could do smaller things, but to really do something this innovative and sustain it, you would need kind of that level of support.
0: I've said it already on the episode, but I just feel like one of the things I really love about the Institute to Innovate is just how holistic the approach is. Um, Because we know securing grants and other financial resources is incredibly important and a huge part of capacity building, obviously, but ensuring kind of that that organizational integrity and sustainability is just as important. So I'm really excited to see kind of how the Institute, you know, grows and expands and how you modify it as you get additional feedback from additional cohorts. Thank you so much, Darice, for coming on the podcast and talking about how wonderful the Institute to Innovate is and how important capacity building is. And I just wanted to say, Thank you so much for your time. I think people are really going to enjoy hearing your thoughts on this.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me.